Thank you for listening to this Lunchtime Talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, curator of Australian paintings and sculpture, Tracy Locke, introduces the new elder wing of Australian art and describes the fresh methodology for seeing and experiencing Australian art. Welcome all of you here to the Art Gallery of South Australia today. My name is Tracy Locke and I'm the curator of Australian art here and I working with my colleague, Elle Freak, have just completed this rehang of the Australian art collection. So we're very, very excited about representing this incredible uh, collection to you, uh, our wonderful audience and, and our wonderful visitors. It comes with a great responsibility and um, I have to say if our shoulders are a bit slumped it's because we do feel the kind of weight of delivering this collection to you and honouring it in the way it should be honoured. Uh, it was certainly a dark day when the collection was stripped from the walls to make way for the Musée d'Orsay's collection, Colours of Impressionism. and. Um, the, so the collection has actually been in storage for 12 months. And uh, I, I might be a little bit radical today and say a couple of things. For example, at that time, you know, speaking with the curators that came out from the Musée d'Orsay's collection, they too were rather astonished to think that we stripped our national collection from the walls to make way for their exhibition. I put to you that, you know, would, would the French do the same for us? <laughs> sure. The point being about that is, you know, why is French art so valorized and so honored and so respected? It's because its people respect its culture. So, you know, I, I think it's important for us to honor our works and honor our collection in the same kind of way. So, I've got that, thank you. <laughs> I've got that off my chest. Uh, so what I'm going to do today is also, um, I'm going to pose some questions to you. I'm going to talk about a couple of my favorite things in the rehang, and then I'm going to open it up to questions because I'm sure a lot of you have some questions for me. Before I do continue, I, I, again, I just want to take a moment to uh, acknowledge the assistance of Elle Freak, who's here today working on this. We work together and we work tirelessly, and I assure you, we would not have met our last Friday deadline without uh, Elle's help and also the fact that she got right behind this whole idea. And a lot of the delivery, the, the beautiful execution of this rehang owes everything to Elle and her beautiful eye. And there are a number of little touches throughout the gallery that are, are all about Elle. For example, the display in gallery two, just here there's a little case of mourning jewellery. It is divine and exquisite and the delivery of that was, was all L's and many, many other things. So thank you L, for your help. So, yeah. <laughs> so I will begin um, by pointing out that when the great Australian art historian Bernard Smith died in 2011. He was saddened at that time that the world was yet to understand his life's work. 
Bernard Smith had spent his whole life arguing that Australia and the Pacific region was much more important to the development of Western art than the world realised. He also believed that isolation is not the same thing as distance. So a lot of this is, is what has fed some of my thinking on this rehang. Over time, certainly more recent years, curators in Australia have adopted his ideas in their temporary exhibitions, where borderless and inclusive histories are presented more frequently. And I take, for example, in Sydney, there was very, very recently an exhibition of an Australian Impressionist work, John Russell, at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And if any of you had the, the great opportunity to see that exhibition when you walked in, you came across Rodin, the works of Van Gogh, Monet and Matisse, all in that same exhibition dedicated to the work of John Russell. So what you see in this elder wing of Australian art is something very, very simple. What we have done, although it's radical, and it's a paradigm shift, what we've done is taken this idea, this, this new methodology that's been occurring in temporary exhibitions, we've taken it and infused it into our permanent collection. Permanent collections of Australian art are usually kind of sealed off, hermetically sealed off, and they run in a linear direction. They run across time, they're chronological, and they're very straight and focused, and one style period rolls after the other. What we've done is opened up that entire canon, and we've said, actually, the story of Australian art is much bigger. The arguments that I've had with telephones pressed against my head from different figures around the country who've said, talk to me about this idea, is that we have to have the story very clear for our visitors and for, for people to understand the trajectory of Australian art. But my point is there is no straight trajectory in Australian art. It's a discursive story. It's a rich story that goes outwards, it goes backwards, it goes forward again, and it is all almost entirely involving offshore activities and then inshore activities. So I'm hoping that uh, over time people will come with us on this journey with this refreshed look at our Australian art collection, one that is embracing, one that is inclusive, and one that understands one in four of our visitors are born overseas. And that we are actually a, a, a nation under incredible cultural change. So in order for our collection to reach people and to, for their lives to be enriched, um, I think it's become very important that we present new dimensions to a lot of our major works that we have in this collection. But we do it grounded and pinned, we underpinned by history and information and rigor. So this is the first collection in the nation that is, is taking this new tack in terms of its permanent uh, collection of Australian art. Again, it has, it's sort of regarded as a sacred ground, but we have opened it up. So watch this space around the nation. I suspect it, it uh, will have an impact. So you may ask why I, 
you know, I would start to think along these lines. It's because every day my curatorial practice I'm posed with dilemmas and conundrums. For example, I'm finding it increasingly difficult to understand how you can define Australian art. So I ask you, what does define Australian art? Could it be something created elsewhere by someone born elsewhere, but be about Australia and still be regarded as Australian art? Now, we know that there's a yes to that because in Gallery One, there's an exquisite major view of the town of Sydney painted circa 1799. It is understood to be a work of Australian art. But, and, and importantly, it is one of only four images of Sydney from that period that exists in the world. And it, it, it records Sydney only after 11 years of European settlement. It was painted by an Englishman, a convict, untrained, but he probably painted it, probably painted it in London. There are a lot of question marks over a lot of early colonial material. So I put to you, we have this masterpiece, major work in Gallery One, but we think it was painted in England by an untrained artist um, who wasn't born here. Okay, so tick, that's apparently Australian art. Could something made with offshore materials and include exotic elements still be regarded as Australian art? Another conundrum in Gallery One. There is a, a painting in Gallery One of a little boy. He's in mourning costume. And it's the earliest image of a child in Australian art. It's from around circa 1813. The stretcher frame, so that when the canvas is stretched, it's stretched around a timber structure. The stretcher frame on that painting of that little boy is possibly made from Antipolo, which apparently was sourced from the Philippines, or it's possibly jackfruit sourced from India. The child wears English clothes. He feeds a cockatoo a banana. The banana is most likely originally sourced from southern China. And the female, sulphur-crested cockatoo, was from Cape York or northwestern Australia, a particular species. Um, now, I feel like, okay, great, it's got a cockatoo from Australia in it, so therefore it's Australian art. But then we realise there are paintings in Europe painted in the 16th century which included the same species of cockatoo, because the cockatoos were traded. So I'm left with these conundrums. Is it actually a work of Australian art? Anyway, I'm going to tick that and say, yes, it is, because it's fabulous. <laughs> it has fun, it's the visual impact, plus it's, it has an Australian provenance, so that's kind of okay. Can something created elsewhere by an Australian-born artist who spends their entire career living offshore still be regarded as Australian art? Stella Bowen, Adelaide-born, departed Australia in 1914. She never returned. Yet she's valorised as a great Australian woman artist. Indeed, she is. And we have in our collection one of the finest self-portraits by a modern artist um, in Gallery 4, and it's the self-portrait of Stella Bowen, painted in her new apartment after separating from Fraud Maddox Ford, the, the English writer that ended their relationship after 11 years. 11 years, she was a single mother, painting in her apartment, penniless, all of her inheritance had supported Ford Maddox, Ford Maddox Force's career, 
And there she is, painting herself, her self-portrait, but wearing her artist smock. It's a statement. It's a, a very powerful statement. But again, we, we instantly go, it's Australian art. Okay. Uh, Rupert Bunny, whose many of his works are in Gallery 3C, descend, angels descending, um, mythological scenes and idols, so forth and so on. Not many gum trees in those subjects. He spent 50 years of his career working in France, but we regard him as Australian. John Russell, who I mentioned earlier, spent 40 years working overseas. So I'm just saying to you that this story actually is more complex with what we see as Australian art. Second to last question, what about something created in Australia, so that's hopeful, something created in Australia but by someone born elsewhere who didn't stay for very long? Charles Condor was English born. He worked in Australia, or he painted in Australia, for four years out of his entire career. But he's responsible for the masterpiece you'll find just around the corner here, the first brilliantly lit landscape in Australian art. Beach and bleaching light captured in a holiday at Mentone in 1888. Precociously young, captures it, and then he leaves. But it's Australian art. Or more safely, is it Australian art when it looks Australian? And again, that's hopeful. Uh, something that looks Australian must be Australian art. And I, I was feeling good about this. But the irony is that Hans Heysen, we know instantly in our minds, we think of his glorious, epic, grand landscapes of, of heroic gum trees. Uh, and he's celebrated for their very Australian qualities. Well, Hans Heysen said, while as an artist, I love Australia, but art actually has no country. It is, in essence, cosmopolitan. Okay, so he was already there. We're just a bit delayed as curators catching up with these ideas. So, what I'll do now, uh, because I think it might be nice for you just to hear from me a couple of little highlights that you'll find throughout the rehang. Um, in Gallery 5, we've dedicated that space to uh, the great strengths in our collection to surrealism. Every space you move through has very, a very strong local inflection to it. It either reflects our great benefactors from South Australia, their areas of interest and taste, where they've wanted to gift, uh, or it rep represents the strengths of our own collection. For example, the inclusion of two of our 20 uh, Auguste Rodin sculptures that we have here in the, in the collection. We have the largest uh, collection of Rodin sculptures in the Southern Hemisphere. And then, of course, the William Morris wallpaper. We have the largest collection of William Morris material outside of Britain. So these little touches and, and assets, really, that are part of our collection are teased in, but for very good reason. But firstly, I'll just point out some of my highlights. In Gallery 5, you'll notice the explosion on the back wall, which refers to uh, Andre Breton, the surrealist Andre Breton's own studio. Uh, but on our wall, you'll find the work of James Kant, 
Now, James Kant passed away here in Adelaide. He lived in Adelaide for many years. He was Sydney-born, but he was caught up in the immediate storm of British surrealism. He was absolutely there. He was a member of the London Surrealist Group and he exhibited with no other than um, Clay and Ernst and Jakirico and very active in London. So again, we have this local uh, artist and local story who was there. He was not isolated from this kind of activity and interest and movement in surrealism. But what you'll find on the wall, on the back wall, is a large work by James Kant. There are other works by James there too. But there is a work called, it's a big painting, a black painting called Merchants of Death. And it's, he painted it in London in 1935. And it's the very first work by an Australian artist painted under the influence of mescaline. Okay? So it's quite edgy, but quite important for those reasons. Um, now, in Gallery 4, you will find the work of Nora Heysen. Um, ma the majority of our Heysen collection is going out on loan to the National Gallery of Victoria. They're doing a big Heysen exhibition. Uh, so, it was thin picking. So, I was aware of a major Nora Heysen in a private collection, which the, the owner agreed to loan it to us for this special rehang, and it's a still life of white camellias. It's exquisite, and next to it, I have placed our wonderful Fantine Latour, the French 19th century flower painter, an example of his work right next to Nora's work, because we know that her father, Hans Heysen, and Nora referred to the Art Gallery of South Australia's two Fantine Latour paintings, the poppies, which is on display in Gallery 4, but also our, our image, our still life of, of zinnias. So this artist, this French artist, and examples of this French artist's work were immediately referred to and were, were immediate inspirations for the work of our own Adelaide artist, Hans Heysen and, and Nora Heysen. And Hans Heysen, again, known, better known as a landscape painter, was also a wonderful still life painter. He regarded Fantine Latour as the king of flower painters. So what I'm getting at here is my argument as to why you walk through Gallery 4 in a wing of Australian art and find an example of the work of Fantine Latour. It's because that very work inspired the work of the artists nearby. Um, another highlight for me is in Gallery 3C, as you head down just to the left around the corner, is a little watercolour. Actually, it's not little, it's about this big. But it's a portrait of a female, and it is by an Adelaide artist called Alice Hambidge, and it's called By the Light of the Candle. Now, it's an important work because it's the first work purchased by the Art Gallery of South Australia uh, created by a woman, and that was acquired in 1899. And the Art Gallery of South Australia has always had uh, a very clear strategy in supporting the work of women artists. So that's our first purchase of the work by a woman artist. He has not been on display since 1996. Because it's a work on paper, it's very sensitive, light sensitive, and so I, I warn you, it won't be on display for very long because it needs to be put back into storage. But it's a great opportunity for you to see that work. It's absolutely 
absolutely exquisite. Another work I'll point out is in this space here, the very tall binding mask, fire dancing mask, the, just at the back of the room. And this is a, a work that is made by the Binings people in New Britain, in New Guinea. And this work was acquired by the gallery in 1971. And it relates to a smaller group of other works that were purchased from New Guinea. Remember, Australia was an administrator for New Guinea. Okay, so in many ways, New Guinea was, was part of our realm. Many Australian artists uh, engaged with New Guinea. And this is a story, too, that has been overlooked. But we, as an institution, started to strategically collect Melanesian and Polynesian material. It was a a fleeting moment, it did not last for many years, but under the, the directorship of John Bailey, we acquired a number of these oceanic objects directly from the community, and they have been in storage for nearly 50 years. They have not been brought out on display before. There is another major mask that was acquired at that time on display in Gallery uh, 5, and it is a mud mask from Vanuatu. It's extremely important, and it's exactly uh, the kind of material that the Surrealists in Paris were looking at from Vanuatu. Giacometti loved the work and the masks of, of the Vanuatu artists. So again, our region has been very, very important for the development of European modernism. Just to summarise for you, um, so I'm hoping that you will understand that these sort of new curatorial me methodologies are breaking through sort of quite exhausted stories. And we're hoping that you'll see that we're casting new light on um, our collection and new light on understanding major works in our collection. An example of that, just to, to summarise, would be behind me you see our masterpiece by Tom Roberts uh, of a breakaway. So this painting here, which has been celebrated as a subject of um, strong masculine labour, a subject that celebrates um, our Australian nation and everything about it that's very uh, characteristically Australian. The, the blue sky, the heat, the dry dust and, and the drought, all of those stories. But uh, for me, I'm hoping that you will see that this classic masterpiece is a bigger story than that. Compositionally, it's exceptionally sophisticated. And Tom Roberts uh, was working in international circles, in dialogue with what people were thinking about and looking at in Europe. And the work, you'll see this kind of cascading, this flow down on the left-hand side of the composition, it's just all dust. It's like a waterfall of dust and matter and energy. So the whole painting is really speaking about speed and movement. And the point being is that Tom Roberts, three of his friends were immediately associated with Rodin. Two of his friends, McKennell and Harry Bates, studied with Rodin in Paris. Of course, Tom Roberts was there in Paris at the time. Rodin was working. And his other friend, John Russell, married Rodin's model, Marianne. So the, the networks and the closeness of those relationships are very immediate. 
But importantly, uh, Tom Roberts was also, of course, looking at the work and sculptures of Rodin. He was using and referring to sculpture, Greek and Italian and classical sculpture, to arrive at the, the positions of his figures in his paintings. In addition to that, like Rodin, Tom Roberts, Tom Roberts was interested in the cutting-edge photography of Edward Mybridge who had realized using a particular uh, camera that um, he could realize that horses, actually, when they move, have all of their hoofs off the ground at the one time. So it's stop-motion photography. And this was very cutting edge. Tom Roberts attended lectures in London uh, on the work of Ed, the, the photographer Edward Mybridge and his, his focus on capturing the figure in motion, animals in motion. Um, Tom Roberts was referring to this, as was Rodin. So I'm trying to bring this other story out here for you to understand the immediacy uh, and the contacts and the engagement that Australian artists were having uh, at the time that they are working. So again, going back to my original statement about Bernard Smith, that isolation is really not the same as distance. Um, so I, I think what I'll do is conclude uh, at that point and uh, but I'm very, very happy to open it up to questions because I'm sure there's some things that might beguile you and puzzle you here, and I'm happy to try and answer. Yes. Um, thank you. Oh, sorry, El Tracy, sorry, um, for a terrific um, explanation. And, um, and it's wonderful that you've brought Australia into the world, which I see that you're doing, and, and using historical research to inform that so well. You're also... I understand now through this speech that you're actually adding another layer to train our observation, our powers of observation, so that sitting here I've realised the connection between the figure. I was going to ask you what you haven't mentioned about the design of the, what, of the layout, meaning how you place the pictures on the walls, because some of those are very far away for sure people like myself to see. But, um, but when you mentioned waterfall, I immediately understood. But I'm wondering... Um, yeah, so if you'd like to say a bit more about the mm -hmm. design. Sure. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. That's a fantastic question. So essentially as you walk through, what uh, I've done is instead of having this linear narrative as you would normally encounter, I've divided the co collection up and the stories up into seven different anthologies uh, in order to expand different stories. This particular space relates to the idea of the marvellous. Um, before I talk more about that, I'll just explain too, unlike every other major art museum in the country, we do not have in-house designers, okay? Elle and I, you're looking at us, we are the designers. Uh, we, everything down to the finish of the pedestal, uh, the, the, the finish, the color, the size, every detail in this space, comes across is, is up to us and our decision, and um, as is the placement of every work, down to the centimetre. The selection of the work is ours. We worked very closely with a team, our team of curators here. James Bennett and Russell Kelty assisted us with expanding the story of the infinite journeys, the, the um, engagement with Japan, the engagement with India. 
um, and our wonderful curators uh, helped us with works on paper and prints and photography and so forth and so on. So it was a kind of a, a group effort, um, but in terms of final selection, the final cut was Elle and myself, and uh, we would have looked at in ex well in excess of uh, 1,000 works as possibilities. We were also working against the clock because ordinarily you would have, ideally, as our current director said, you would need two years to work on a project of this scale. We had from April this year. So we had to move very fast, but what in some ways that actually gave us an opportunity because normally we might like to request loans from other institutions to shape and, and bring out different stories to enhance our own stories. That was not a, a possibility. Uh, so we drew on our own, the resources of our own collections and private collections and things like that. So getting back to your original question, um, the placement of works was entirely down to Elle and myself. As it was, we did the 2011 rehang, um, and the director of that at that time did not change one placement that we did at that time, and the same has pretty much happened this time. So um, this particular space, was a challenge because it was very important that we bring out our wonderful masterpieces for people to enjoy and understand. Then how do you do that? How do you make these works um, speak to our audiences? And so I was quite interested in this idea, not of the sublime, but at the idea of the marvelous. And that a lot of the works you see in this room have something a little strange about them. And that's what, I, what I've tried to explore, whether it's a corroboree scene, uh, a volcano, a forest scene, something a little bit worrying, disaster scenes, catastrophes, something a little unsettling. And it comes back to this uh, interest that I have in the Surrealists and the, the Andre Breton who said, everything that is marvellous is beautiful and everything beautiful is marvellous but still there's this little unsettling aspect to things. One of the great um, joys for me that we do have in this marvellous space, and they are really marvellous, are the toas that we have on loan from the South Australian Museum, and they're in the showcase behind here. They're, uh, they belong, they're fascinating because they straddle that very interesting divide. This is where Australian art gets very exciting. It's where the frisson is. They straddle that divide between ethnology and art. Uh, so we've got a selection of these towers on loan. They were created in 1903-1904 by the Deary people on Lake Eyre. Lake Eyre is about the size of France. And they came out of the Lutheran mission uh, at that time, which was run by uh, a man called Reuter. And he had a particular fascination for place names. And he started recording Aboriginal place names. Uh, so this interest in etymology. And we think that these sculpted towers made by the Deary people came out of this Lutheran, this man, this reverend's interest in place names because each one of these little uh, towers is like a signpost. It's like a marker. But why they're interesting is because they have been, the Aboriginal people have used European uh, materials to make them, uh, but 
they contain Aboriginal content and significance and creation stories, but they've used European materials. But also one needs to step back and think, why on earth and since when do Aboriginal people need sign makers, markers? They just don't. It's a European idea in itself. So they're, they're very beautiful. They almost look surreal, like little strange hands coming up. They're exquisite, they're marvellous, they're baffling, um, but very, very important works. And most importantly, we now see that they really prefigure what happened at Papunya in 1971 where artists in Papunya trans transferred their sound, uh, sand painting designs onto portable European supports, and then the movement took off. The revolution happened. So these are kind of a very early prefiguration of, of that. So we're thrilled and grateful to the museum for allowing us to have these incredible works uh, on display here, but they're a perfect example of, of this sense of the marvellous. Um, so, I hope I've answered that question. Are there any more? Yes. I'm thoroughly enjoying just beginning to, to get used to the new space, uh, but it occurred to me I'm missing two things, and that's Marie Tuck. There was a yes. painting by Marie Tuck. Yes, yes. Which I haven't seen for many years. Yes, now. yes. And also, I'm a deal. Yes. Yes. Yes, I completely agree with you, and um, it was it was very difficult to not uh, include their work. Just before the collection was removed from display 12 months ago, we had a wonderful display of Ivor Hill's work. You may recall we were able to secure his self-portrait from 1935, and uh, we often have his landscapes on. So yes, I'm, I'm very aware of an absence of Ivor Hill. He'll come back but he's just not in this take. Mari Tuck, very major Adelaide artist who also studied with Rupert Bunny in, in France and Paris, and we have a wonderful collection of his works. And we so tried to make, include an example of her work in Gallery 3C with the Impressionists, but it just didn't quite happen, but she will be back, she will be in, and she is very much uh, adored. Yes, so I'm sorry she didn't get in. But some artists had had to go, but there will be a refresh. This will change. It'll be dynamic. Yes. Any other questions? Yes. Ah, uh, yes, I can. Um, I've been working with this. This is have to be regarded as one of the most beautiful art museum, historical art museum interiors in the nation. And one of the great things about this space is its sense of grandeur and elegance, but also a sense of intimacy. But above all, what is wonderful about it, it's sense of volume. Volume, the volume of the space. Traditionally, we've treated this space and this gallery as very much as a picture gallery. So everything has been clinging to the walls a lot. And we discussed the fact that what we wanted to do was bring out a more sculptural aspect to this rehang. 
and try and bring more uh, sculpture into the space, but also elevate the sculpture so that we, as a visitor, you come in and you, your eye is taken up. Um, so we also wanted to give works a sense of that they are floating, everything to have a very elegant light touch to it. So things are not feeling anchored down. Usually we have solid pedestals, classical pedestals, but we, we had a number of new pedestals made and the timber pedestals uh, that you see here, I, I'm, I'm going to be unashamedly admit that um, last year when I was in Paris, I attended the most beautiful exhibition at the Bordel Museum of the work of Balenciaga. And some of the pedestals in that exhibition, uh, I came back with images and they inspired these pedestals. But the timber ones really reference the, um, the kind of sculptor studio workhorse. Do you know what I mean? They're usually timber and you spin them around and you can work your piece of clay in three, three dimensions. So the inspiration for that came from Paris um, but also based on the sculptor's studio and the fact we were very deliberate about them being very light and very airy. So that's the idea behind the timber sculpture. Yes. 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 Well, you know, we're ready for some um, feedback. <laughs> So thank you. I, I mean, it's lovely to think they're, they're become, getting some commentary. I, I noticed even on social media, they're getting some commentary. Um, I feel very, very delighted with them, I have to say, aesthetically. I think, yes, a local, uh, two local designers based on our ideas and then a local maker. And if you have a look closely at them, they have been exquisitely made, absolutely beautiful. So um, I'm very, I feel like they are probably a little bit, maybe they're a bit hard for people to get used to at the moment, but perhaps live with them for a little while. <laughs> One last question. Thank you. Yes. Yes, they're great. So, you know, and, and I love this. So I love those people. <laughs> but I'm just a bit precious about the fact that you have a story. It won't be the good of this is the greatest work, uh, but that is thematically telling the story. Yes. 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 Again, that's been very conscious is to not focus on artist CVs, okay? Not focus, but focus on the, how compelling is that image itself? Does the work stand up for itself? Does it build out a bigger story? Some works we know, like a breakaway, can hold the entire wall and they, they're compelling. Other works, that every little fragment is part of our story. 
you know, whether it's decorative arts or a shawl or a piece of jewellery or a little drawing, something adds to the bigger story or something can add to embellish us an important story. So I've been very aware of honouring those artists that absolutely should be on these walls, but also looking at those artists that have been overlooked and reconsidering them. And of course, Australian, certainly early South Australian colonial art, you know, we did have fantastic artists here like Martha Barclay, for example, and Teresa Walker, but we also had other artists that were kind of a little not so top of the rung, like you're, I think, you know, you're meaning James Shaw and Charles Hill and, and artists like that whose works are on these walls. But, you know, these works are speaking about reportage, uh, history painting, so it's not all about the grand uh, landscape. It's also about those other stories. Okay, well, we might finish there. Thank you very much. <laughs>